Hey, but first, let's focus on the civic election in Vancouver. Voting day is this Saturday. Check out the new promise from the One City Vancouver slate of candidates in their platform, a network of car-free streets across the city, including Robson Street and Gastown. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Iona Bonamy, Vancouver City Council candidate with One City. Very pleased to welcome Iona to the show. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Mike. Oh, sorry. Hi, Mike. Nice to, Hi. Mm, nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. So let's talk about this uh, this plan here in your platform. So how would this work? Car-free streets. Which which streets would be car-free? Yeah, so as a part of our platform that we announced in September, as you said, we would open up a network of car light to car-free streets that prioritize walking, rolling, and cycling. And this is critical um, as we need to reduce our carbon emissions from transportation, which emits nearly 40% of our city's carbon emissions. So it's our second biggest source of carbon emissions in the city. And we're starting to propose, uh, we're proposing to start with a pilot program on Robson Street between Stanley Park and Hornby and on, um, in Gastown, uh, where we would have lots of popular destinations and we know people are already, uh, getting there by walking, cycling and transit. And the pilot would be held once a month and the street would be opened up for people walking, cycling, and maybe transit. And we would also work with Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation to see if we could bring this pilot to Granville Island as well, which is, of course, an artistic and cultural hub for a city. And this isn't a new idea. We've had car-free festivals along a number of busy streets in the city for many years, including Commercial Drive, Main Street, and Demon Street. And what this pilot would allow us to do is try out on a more regular but still quite spaced out basis and it would let residents and visitors a chance to experience for themselves what it's like what right. the potential is for these streets and then give us an opportunity to work with residents and businesses to ensure people can still access transit easily people with disabilities are able to get to their destinations and businesses mm. can still get their goods delivered how are people with disabilities going to access this if they need a car to get down well, there yeah, we could be looking at places uh, on the side streets that would still be open for vehicle traffic to have designated oh. drop-off and pick-up periods. If they need to have, uh, they need to be dropped off closer to where they, um, to their destination. We could work with them to see how we can make that happen. Okay, speaking of Iona Bonami, Vancouver City Council candidate, the promise for car-free streets. Okay. So you describe it as a pilot project that would be started off like once a month, like like for a weekend kind of thing. Is that the that the idea? Yeah, I mean the specific yeah. dates we would have to, uh, time to uh, figure that out, but likely on a weekend when there are often people in on the streets and more likely to be visiting the businesses there. Right, and you also promise car light streets. What is that? Mm-hmm. So car light streets are uh, streets that are like, heavily traffic calmed. So there might still be some vehicles using that street, um, but the majority of people using that street would be people walking, cycling, and rolling, and of course people gathering on the streets as well. And oh, we use oh. di- yeah, we can use different measures to um, discourage people from driving on the streets. Could be like uh, traffic diverters. Um, and they, again, this could be temporary. Um, we could trial it on a basis and pilot it and see how it works. 
All right. So you just basically want people to stop driving or drive less. Well, yeah, as I said, as I said, only it is critical. We do have uh, a significant um, transportation is a significant source of carbon emissions. And we know that climate change, we have seen the impacts of climate change over the last few years in particular. We've seen the heat waves. uh, We've seen the wildfires, the floods. Uh, So we've done a lot in terms of, you know, creating uh, carrots for people to choose other options. But we know to have significant behavioral change, we need to have sticks and carrots. And this way, it's, you know, it's not just a stick. We're opening up the streets to people to really emphasize it, to yeah. reclaim the streets. So people can gather there. They can, we can have businesses extending their patios further out so they can have more space for their customers. Okay. Okay. What would you say to someone listening to this right now who doesn't really have any other option other than to drive and who say, before you whack me with a stick to stop me from driving, what about my ability to get around the city, my freedom to enjoy what the city has to offer if you start making key streets car free or like you said, car light where you, you know, you put in all kinds of barriers to kind of discourage people from driving. What do you say to people who just, you know, just say like, this is another attack on a car. Well, we have seen a lot of neighborhoods like the West End that have, um, over the last few decades, we've done a lot of traffic calming. And actually, people have said that they love living there because it is really yeah. easy to get around and safe and comfortable. And there are still streets where people are, are able to drive. Um, a lot of the arterial streets are meant for vehicle movement. And what we're trying to do is for those commercial streets with destinations, reclaim them so that businesses are able to thrive. They have space for their customers and people yeah. are able to enjoy them by foot and Walking what if you got what if you got an electric car and you're not you know you're not polluting i mean if the problem if the problem is emissions like greenhouse gas emissions what if you have an electric car well uh, electric car still takes up space on our streets uh, we only have a, have a limited amount of space on our streets right so when we actually open it up we are actually allowing more people to enjoy the street because one person on a bike or a person uh on, in a wheelchair or a person walking, they take up a lot less space. And there's more people moving capacity when you open up the streets like that. I want to thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for the time. Oh. Let's talk about an animal rights court case here in British Columbia that has attracted attention around the world when it comes to animal rights activists and their tactics. This is the case of animal rights protesters who descended on a Fraser Valley pig farm back in 2019. This is a very large group of protesters and they went onto the property, actually got into a large barn and started live streaming video from this hog farm. The farm had earlier been criticized by the animal rights group PETA for what they alleged was cruel practices on the farm. There were no charges against the farm, but there were charges laid against the protesters. They were sentenced, two of the protesters were sentenced to jail terms yesterday and probation. Amy Serrano and Nick Schaefer. Got lawyer Camille Labchuk standing by. Let's have a listen to Amy Serrano here. This is one of the animal rights activists who was uh, sentenced to jail yesterday. Here she is describing what they did at this farm in the Fraser Valley. Have a listen to this. We went to this farm 
65 of us attempted to get inside the farm um, and 50 successfully did get inside. The rest stood outside and peacefully protest on a public road. And we stayed there for around I think, six or seven hours um, and we live streamed inside of this farm. So we sat down in a room full of pregnant pigs who were confined in gestation crates and there were hundreds of them. It's this massive, massive room and it's just one room in one barn. These are factories. These are metal or sorry, cement factories. Amy Serrano, she was one of the activists who sentenced to jail yesterday, 30 days in jail, 12 months probation, along with Nick Schaefer. They were convicted of break and enter and mischief as part of that protest. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Camille Labchuk. Camille is an animal rights lawyer, executive director, animal justice. Camille, thank you for coming on. Glad to be here, Mike. Camille, you're, the, you're the lawyer on this case, right? No, I have oh, not okay. been involved with the case. I've oh, okay. been simply observing it and commenting on it. Oh, okay, okay. I just wanted to clarify that right away. Um, okay, let me ask you about, about the case. What do you think of this sentence, like 30 days in jail for these activists? I mean, they, they straight up, I mean, it's not like they're denying that they they did what they did. I mean, they did do they did do a break and enter. They did go on to private property, right? Well, you know, I think there's some arguments that what they did wasn't criminal in nature, but that's kind of in the past because at this point, the jury has convicted them. I know they plan to file an appeal based on some of the conduct of the judge in that trial because he wouldn't let them show the jury any evidence of, of animal cruelty inside the barn. Um, so the reason that they went inside was, was kind of concealed from the jury, which is a problem. But, you know, Mike, back to the sentence. Yeah. When I saw that they were going to be locked away for 30 days in jail, uh, you know, basically for walking onto a farm for a couple hours, I was just completely floored. Uh, there's never been a jail sentence before for a peaceful act of civil disobedience like this in Canada, and it's a really dangerous precedent. Okay. I think, though, the, the facts of the case seem pretty cut and dry, though. I mean, you even heard her say, describe in that clip, they went onto the property, they entered this barn, they started live streaming the inside of the barn. This is private property, right? So how is that? I mean, don't you get what you, you, you get what's coming to you when you do something like that? Do you not? Well, look, I think what they did was very clearly trespass. They didn't have permission right. to be there, and they went there anyway. But what they yeah. were actually convicted of was break and enter. And break and enter isn't just walking onto property without permission. Breaking enter is, is going in there and committing a serious offense. And I'm not sure that there's any evidence that they did commit any serious offense while they were in there. They just sort of sat down and live streamed the conditions. And eventually they, you know, they left. So, you know, there's going to be an appeal in the case. And hopefully the Court of Appeal will, will sort that out. But I think what's really clear here is that they're being treated very differently than a farm would be if it had been caught abusing animals. Um, you know, Mike, we've never seen a farm owner or operator jailed for um, even the most serious cases of undercover footage showing egregious abuse on farms. So, you know, I think if Amy Serrano and Nick Schaefer had been filmed, um, you know, ripping wings off of chickens, beating turkeys to death with shovels, or leaving animals to suffer with untreated injuries, they probably would have got a light, lighter sentence than simply being there and trying to expose the abuse. Okay, I think it's very important to point out that this particular Fraser Valley Farm that was at the center of this, there was an investigation by uh, authorities here in British Columbia, and there were no charges, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, I think, yeah. a really, uh, another really shocking part of this, um, this story. So the, there was video that came out from this farm before these activists occupied the farm. And the video showed workers prodding pigs in the face with electric prods. It showed pigs stuck inside tiny metal gestation crates. 
um, with dead and dying piglets surrounding them. It showed really, really troubling conditions. And despite that, which as an animal lawyer, I can tell you to me, suggests very uh, clear illegal cruelty, there were never any charges uh, laid against the farm. And meanwhile, the folks who tried to draw attention to this are the ones who are prosecuted. Right. But as I understand the way the case unfolded, too, like authorities in British Columbia said they they could not prove that this video, uh, they investigated this video that was released by PETA. They looked at the video. They investigated the video. This was an anonymously provided video, right, that came from came from PETA. We don't know who filmed this video. We actually now do know who filmed that oh, video, okay. and that came out during during the legal proceedings. So the individual who filmed the video uh, came forward to the SPCA um, <laughs> before this action at the farm, identified himself, and um, sought whistleblower protection, uh, which he was granted. But unfortunately, he was later turned over to the police and, and charged himself. So it is uh, known who took the video, and there could have been action taken, but in this case, there wasn't. Why there wasn't is it's really a question for authorities. Right. The BCSPCA investigated this and did not recommend charges uh, in the case. Like what, When people think about these hog farms or, or big, large-scale industrial pig farms, let's, let's set aside this particular farm in, in, in question here and just talk generally. Like, Would you say there is a perception that, you know, when people think about a, a farm, they may think of, you know, a, a family-run old McDonald's farm type of thing where all the animals are got lots of room to move around in a, in a beautiful barn. But the reality is quite different for most large-scale farming. Yeah, I think that's right, Mike. Uh, there's yeah. this, this lingering perception of old McDonald's farm where animals roam happily in the backyard and then they have one bad day when they get killed. Uh, and that's certainly the image that the meat industry tries to project. So if you look at their marketing materials and the language they use, they never talk about the fact that mother pigs um, spend most of their lives confined in gestation crates. And, you know, some of your listeners probably know what those are, but for those who don't, a gestation yeah. crate is a metal cage that is literally the size of the pig's body. Um, she can't turn around. She can, you know, sort of stand up and lie down, but she can't do anything or go anywhere or even turn around. And mother pigs who are pregnant and gestating spend their lives in those gestation crates. <clears throat> Uh, once they give birth, they're moved to a slightly larger farrowing crate where their babies can nurse for a minute, but they still can't turn around. Um, and that's the reality of modern pig production in this country. And I think when people learn the truth about that, they're they're really surprised and upset. Yeah. What are the laws in Canada around this? I mean, there are standards, there are laws around animal cruelty, right? So, I mean, the situation you're describing there, I think for, for most people, would doesn't sound good, obviously, but it's not like it's a, illegal, Correct. Well, I would say to anyone who's concerned about this, don't be comforted by the law because the law is not doing really much of anything to protect farmed animals. So, yeah, we do have general animal cruelty laws, but there's exemptions in there for standard farming practices. So if the farming industry decides that it's standard for them to confine mother pigs in these crates, um, is it standard to cut, you know, the, the tails and the testicles off of piglets without anesthesia? That essentially becomes insulated from the law and becomes a practice that's accepted. Uh, so I think that's a real problem. And then the other thing is that we actually don't have animal welfare regulations to firm. So there's no law federally or provincially that says you must give pigs X amount of space. Um, you can't keep chickens in tiny cages so small they can't spread their wings. Um, you must give animals social opportunities. There's, there's nothing like that. So we don't regulate welfare in this country on farms. And we exempt most cruelty on farms from animal cruelty laws. 
And we don't don't monitor these firms either. Uh, the BCSBCA has been on record now for quite some time calling on the government to actually put in, in to, into force some sort of farm monitoring and inspection service. Because right now, the only time the BCSBCA goes onto a farm is if there's a complaint. They just don't have the resources to police all these farms. Do you think it's legitimate? Let's go back to this court case for a moment. So we've got two people sentenced yesterday to 30 days in jail, 12 months probation. Taking a look at the comments, Camille, from the judge in the case who said the protest was, quote, a carefully planned and orchestrated mass invasion of the farm and that the two people sentenced here incited and encouraged many others to break the law. This is why they're going to jail for 30 days. Do you condone, like as, as a lawyer and an advocate, like do you condone going on to private property, going on to a private farm, breaking into a barn, live streaming what's in there? I mean, it's clearly illegal. You don't, con- you don't condone that, do you, or do you? You know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, like you said, and animal justice. We don't condone illegal actions. We don't do them ourselves. But I think it's also important to point out sometimes the disparities with law. And when you look at the situation where someone goes onto a farm, doesn't cause any damage, simply exposes conditions, and they get jailed for 30 days. And meanwhile, this farm is keeping animals in really appalling conditions and prodding pigs in the face with electric prods. Um, I, you know, I think there's a really different way in which those two people are treated. The farmer is getting beneficial treatment and the protester is the one who's getting jailed. And I just don't think that's a fair situation. Um, you know, I think it's clear that these folks knew what they were doing. They engaged in an act of civil disobedience. Um, but civil disobedience uh, is quite different from, you know, intentionally going on the farm and um, damaging things and stealing things and, and trying to cause economic damage. They were just trying to show people what goes on. Camille, thank you for coming on to talk about this case today. Appreciate it. Always glad to join you, Mike. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Camille Labchuk there. She's an animal rights lawyer. All right, let's talk to the North Vancouver man who had a wild and woolly experience uh, earlier this week out for a walk. Suddenly there's a black bear shows up on the scene and it was game on after that. This bear got aggressive with him and I'm happy to say he survived to tell us the story here today. Chris Springstead. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Okay, Chris, this happened on Tuesday, right? Yeah, that's okay. correct. Okay, where about? Where did this all go down? It happened on Mont Royal Place, uh, on the cul-de-sac there. It's off Mont Royal Boulevard near Mosquito Creek. Okay, do you live up around there? Or? Um, I actually uh, work in the area, so I'm here like you know all the time. I live in Surrey, but I'm, I frequent okay. this, this area, yeah. Okay, what time was this? It was uh, pretty much 2 p.m. on the dot around that time. Okay, 2 p.m. Tuesday afternoon. Okay, tell me what happened, Chris. Yeah, so went out. So uh, I was going to, the kids and I were going to go for a walk, and we noticed there was a bear out, and it seemed like it moved on. And so, you know, I went out with the coffee, you know, make sure it's gone and we can get ready for our walk. Um, as soon as I get out, you know, I get onto the street. Um, very apparent the bear came into sight by the neighbor's garbage, and the bear took one look at me and just, uh, started heading on over immediately once they looked at me and uh so at that point you know like well to be honest i wanted to run (laughs) but you know you you can't run with a bear so i just tried to look big and be like no you can't and then it it picked up pace and so at that point i knew like i'm in big trouble here (laughs) okay so it was charging at you 
Yeah, it started off with a yeah, it started off with like a walk with purpose, and then it, it switched mm. on to a full uh, full gallop, and you know, like the pause came up, like it started to lift itself off the ground and everything. Oh my god! Okay, and is this like in an urban area? Did you say, or is this? You, yeah, you mentioned- on the on the street, like on the street, like in front of houses. Yes. Yeah. Okay, but you mentioned like Mosquito Creek. Like, what's that area like around there? It's like. Um, so yeah, it's North Vancouver. Um, yeah. It's close by Grouse and Capilano. You know, we yeah. the, it, the houses on Mount Royal back up onto the mountain a bit there under the trail system that follows the creek. You know, so it's a, it's pretty. You know, for being you know the suburbs, it's still it's still pretty bushy here, right? Yeah, right. It's pretty wild around there, and and it's not unusual to see a, a black bear around there, right? No, no. So this same bear, we believe we've actually been seeing it around for a few years. It's one of several that frequent the area. So, like, the whole thing's quite sad because, like, we feel like we we sort of know this bear. We've seen it, yeah. you know, like, uh, so it, it, the whole thing's very unfortunate, you know. Okay, so it starts to, like you mentioned, it was sort of swaggering along, kind of walking with purpose. Like, you could tell the, the bear was not happy, I guess, when it saw you. No, it, yeah. as soon as it saw me, like, the head lowered, and it just, like, immediately right towards me. And so, oh. like, I I went to, you know, my, my first, like, my, like, honestly, my thought that one of my head was, well, this isn't going as expected. <laughs> and then, you know, that, you know, I almost started to turn, get ready to run. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, okay. so it was, okay, so you know, what, just hold your ground. What happened next? Yeah. So once, uh, like I had my coffee mug. Um, and so when it came up and the paws went off the ground, I just, uh, you know, just swung down as hard as I could with the mug and it just shattered over its face. And I just kind of took another swing with the other hand and got it. Um, I guess just the momentum of double swinging, I don't know, but the mug shattered on its head and, uh, you know, and, and I guess that startled it enough. Uh, and it, you know, kind of just went to its side, turn around and beamlined it the opposite direction through some bushes and up into a tree. Holy smoke. Okay. So this is like a ceramic coffee mug you had on you. Exactly that. A large yeah. ceramic coffee mug. One you'd get like at IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, man. You mugged that bear. That's uh that's that's pretty wild. So you smash the you smash your coffee mug on the bear's the bear's head. Like at that point the bear was like how cl- you know, it was like rearing up. It was ready to attack you, right? Yeah, I, like so I believe and same with the the the, the wildlife officials I've been speaking with, conservation officers, different people about it, um, they all believe that, yeah, it was, you know, whether or not it was just going to be a, like uh, a defensive food, like I'm just going like, to bite you and that's it, or if it was, you know, I'm going to maul you to death, like that's up for debate. But what everyone's agreed on is like it was going to attack me, right? Like do something. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. I got very, very lucky. Yeah. And so you, you smashed it with the coffee mug and then you gave it, what, a good, a left, a left hook? Yeah, so uh, yeah, because I'm I I drink like coffee with my right hand, so I just smashed yeah. it down as soon as it's done. I just kind of like, just swung back down the other way, right? You know, wow. just, you know, like I don't know like how to describe it. It was sort of like you know that instinct of like you can't get knocked over here, right? Yeah, and yeah, the yeah. bear was sort of coming up on the from the hill, like you know coming upwards. So I think I had like that high ground advantage. <laughs> yeah. How fast was it? Uh. You know what? It's really hard to say in the moment, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, like it seemed like it was all over in like a matter of like less than three seconds. But it's it's really hard to say, right? Yeah. What was going through your mind? I mean, you don't have much time to react or think. I mean, I'm sure the adrenaline's flowing, and you're just reacting on instinct. But was what went through your mind when you saw this thing running at you? Yeah, the, like I said, that fight or flight kicked in to run, um, yeah. and I had to physically stop myself from running. Like, my body was turning and, you know, getting ready to be like, oh, I'm getting out of here. But it's like, well, then it's just going to, you know, knock you over. <laughs> so 
So it oh, was, yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I've had a lot of bear encounters and stuff like that. That was my first aggressive one. Um, and I, I think it was just kind of knowing, okay, what do you like that, that, you know, learning you do, what are you supposed to do in this situation? Right. And you just kind of put it to action the best you can. Okay. Well, you, are you, would you still be willing to walk around that neighborhood now or? Absolutely. So I, I am standing on that street about 40 feet from where it happened right now. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, yeah. So the one thing I wanted to say, really to, uh, send out to everybody is, you know, like this shouldn't be a fear mongering thing. You know, people yeah. should be able to live and coexist peacefully. I believe it, it does happen. And unfortunately rare events happen, but you shouldn't be afraid to get out and go for walks, go for hikes, you know, or even be like, you know, living in fear of bears. Like, they have just as much to fear of us. Right. Yeah. Chris, I'm glad you're okay, and uh, thanks for sharing the story with me today. I appreciate it a lot. Oh, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to, to tell it. Yeah, you bet. Thank you, Chris. Chris Springstead there and his encounter with the black bear in North Van on Tuesday. Smacked it over the head with a ceramic coffee mug. Gave it another little whack, and the bear, bear ran away. How would that boy, man, that would be scary. Let's check in with Sergeant Simone Gravel now from the BC Conservation Officer Service. Sergeant Gravel, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. What do you think of that story? Did he do the right thing there by standing his ground? It's quite a story, yes. Yes, he definitely did the right thing. Like he, he mentioned, he was tempted to run away, but bears run very fast. So that's the last thing you want to do. And he stood his ground. In most cases, bears will stop there. They will do what we call a bluff charge, and they will not close uh, the gap to make contact with people. So it's yeah. pretty rare that a bear will go that far. And in this case, yes, you obviously have to do what you have to do to defend yourself. And uh, I think Chris did the right thing here. Yeah, and if he had turned around and started running, I can certainly understand how that would be the sort of the gut reaction in the moment. <laughs> like, do you think the bear... Yeah. Does the bear sort of, does that trigger like a pursuit, a pursuit uh, thing in the bear's mind? The bear would go after you if you run? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So running is really not advised to do in any case when you encounter bear. So yeah. like I mentioned, like usually you encounter bear in, in the North Vancouver. It's very common. You talk loudly and you leave the area and it's, it, there's not much more to say, but uh, in some rare case, bears can be very defensive, depends on the situation. They can be surprised. For some reason, they perceive you as a threat, and they can usually vocalize. They'll do some sounds, and they will bluff charge you. Uh, in this case, it seems like the bluff charge went further than that, and the bear was yeah. ready to make con contact. So a bear can be, you know, like pushing someone, mauling someone, and then disengage, but that's how... You know, we can speculate what could have happened. Uh, standing your ground and, you know, fighting back is the right thing to do in those situations, of course. But it, right. it is important to say there's a lot of things we can do as well to prevent such situation. It is an unfortunate uh, situation. This bear has learned a behavior. He's obviously very comfortable in this neighborhood. He's feeding on garbage on a daily basis. And now he's protective of that food source. <clears throat> So we want to avoid that at the first place by securing attractants and making sure bears are not accessing garbage in a residential area and they will not feel possessive of it. They don't see, we want them to not see our residential area as a place to, to feed on a daily basis like this. And negative yeah. encounter like this would just simply not happen. 
Right. And yeah, and you heard Chris describe there that he feels that this bear had been sort of spotted in the neighborhood before trying to get into garbage cans and that kind of thing. Like, Simone, what is the what is the status of this? Are you guys investigating this now? Are you looking for this bear? Is the bear still out there? Yeah, well, we reviewed the history of this bear and, you know, we look at all the data and the information we receive. Obviously, we spoke with Chris and we got his story. And it, it, it is a very concerning behavior. This, this bear obviously escalated uh, his level of conflict with human over time. And now he's feeding on non-natural food for a long period of time on a regular basis. And now he's protective of that food source. He's persistent in the area. So at this point, we've kind of ran out of options. And public safety is our priority. And that's what, that's what we're doing. We just want to make sure people are safe out there. And we have many reasons to believe that this bear is a threat to the public. And, you know, Chris can testify on that yeah. as well. It, it is very likely that this bear will repeat this behavior. We, did, we do believe that this bear also bluff charge other people in the past few weeks oh. based on the, the data we have. And then everything escalates. Obviously, our, 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 our primary response to that is to provide education and, you know, do some enforcement, making sure that we work with everyone involved in the community to make sure this bear is not escalating his level of conflict with humans to, to, to reach that point. But at some point, we run out of option and public safety is our priority and we simply have to remove uh, this bear to make sure that nobody will get injured. Okay, so that's the plan now. You're you're looking for this bear to to take it out now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. We uh, okay. that, that's our, that's our role, and unfortunately, we don't have any other options for this kind of situation. And I know that's the sad part of that story, but uh, it's a lesson learned for everyone, for all the community, to understand that you know negligence related to attractant can lead to situation like this. And unfortunately, it's often the the bear that pay the price. Right. And in the, rare the bear... cases, the humans, but. The bear is still out there, though, right? You guys are looking for the bear. Is that is that what you're doing? So we set traps. So we have a trap set okay. in the area, and we okay. uh, we hope we hope that we'll be able to trap this bear. And we're not going to kill any bears. We'll we'll make sure that we uh, we're confident that we're trapping the bear that matched the description, and we have footage and photos of the bear and some descriptions. So. Uh, if we are confident that we're capturing the right bear and, and, and it's deemed that being a very big concern for public safety, then the bear will be killed. Simone, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for your interest. We'll talk about sleep disorders now, and there's been a rise in reported sleep disorders. This is consistent with the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of people having troubles uh, with their sleep. So this has been a documented surge in sleep disorders, and it's been really happening around the world. In the United States, two out of three Americans are reporting now they are sleeping either more or less than they really want to. Typical kind of sleep disorders that people are reporting, insomnia, I uh, got a bit of that, touch of that myself occasionally. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Charay, sleep disorders expert at the Center for Sleep. He's a sleep scientist at the University of Calgary. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jonathan, thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Are you seeing an increase? Like, are more people reporting sleeping sleep troubles these days? Well, we're seeing a lot of patients at the clinic, quite frankly, but we're seeing a lot of uh, 
insomnia, sleep apnea, and uh, insufficient sleep. So meaning that people will not sleep the uh, recommended number of hours, which is normally between seven and nine hours per night. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about how much sleep adults normal, normally need. So seven, seven to nine hours, is that, that what you, that's what it is, right? Yeah, based on the uh, National Foundation uh, recommendation, and an adult between the age of 18 and 64-year-old should be sleeping between seven and nine hours per night. Yeah, do you think most people get that much sleep? Absolutely not. I'm seeing that yeah. at the clinic every day. Uh, and there is plenty of reason why people are not able to reach the uh, recommended uh, number of hours for sleep. Uh, you may just think about what we are going through, the pandemic. Some people are very stressed about this. Uh, the, the work requirement, the, the change in the uh, work schedule with the uh, at home and remote work. And some are going back to office. Some it's 50-50. Uh, then you have to deal with the kids at daycare, maybe uh, at school, remote school. So all of that very sudden change uh, increase the stress and the burden of stress on, uh, on most people, and there's an impact on sleep. Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the more common sleep disorders out there. You touched on a, a couple of them. Insomnia, like what is the actual sort of definition of that? So essentially, that would be someone who has difficulty or a inability to initiate sleep within 30 minutes. I will have more than three awakening per night for more than 30 minutes for three nights per week for three consecutive months and will have daytime impairment the following day. This is what insomnia is. How common is that? So the syndrome of insomnia, so someone would be all these uh, factors I just uh, mentioned and the daytime impairment, we're looking at 10-15% uh, of the population. Whereas for the, the symptoms, so someone who's having a poor night or an acute phase of insomnia, uh, we're looking at 30 to 40%, if not more, of the population at any wow. given day. Wow, that, that's a lot. You mentioned sleep apnea, and I, I know people who suffer from this. What, what is that? Can you describe it? Uh, so that will be considered a uh, sleep breathing disorder. So in other words, when you are sleeping, you're not breathing uh, appropriately. You're not bringing uh, the uh, level of oxygen to your body, to your blood, to your brain, as you should normally do. So that will have tremendous impact on your brain and your heart. So the uh, first treatment, the first line treatment will be seeing a sleep physician to be assessed. And then should you need a CPAP or APAP therapy, that still always remains to be seen, but it is in, a, in essence a, a breathing disorder, a inability from the patient to breathe normally when asleep. Speaking of Dr. Jonathan Charest, University of Calgary, he is a sleep scientist. Okay, Jonathan, do you have any tips for getting to sleep? Like, let's say you're having trouble nodding off when you get in, into bed. What, what, do you, what can you do? Count sheep? What, what would you recommend? Well, counting sheep, I have some patients that they do that. But uh, uh, first rule will always be you don't go to bed upset. You don't go to bed frustrated. You don't go to bed stressed. You go to bed because you are sleepy. 
So essentially, most people, oh, I want to be in bed by 10 because uh, that seems like a decent hour. My first question to them is always, are you actually sleepy? So patient needs to make the difference between I'm tired and I'm sleepy. And in order to be sleepy, you want a nice pre-bedtime routine away from the screen that is relaxing. It can be through music, through any hobbies, through reading, stretching, light physical activity. As long as you don't spend the entire evening in, in front of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Amazon Plus, Disney Plus, all I need my patient to do, and everyone for that matter, is take some personal time for you to wind down and relax before bedtime, please, and stay away from those screens. Okay, I think that's really good advice. Why is it important to get a, a good night's sleep? I mean, it's kind of an obvious question, but what kind of impact can it have on your life if you're not getting proper amount of sleep each night? Uh, we can go a different uh, way on this. So when you sleep, in fact, your brain is washing off all the toxin that you did accumulated throughout the day. So it's at a very, very uh, baseline, a physiological need that we need uh, sleep. And it only takes one poor night of sleep to remind you how important this is for your mood and your performance, meaning that your performance can be either athletic performance or cognitive performance. If you have a poor night of sleep, uh, you don't perform the same way at work. If you have a poor night of sleep, you don't perform the same way uh, on the field, on the ice, on the track, and you are more jumpy, moody. And there's also a safety aspect. If you're sleepy while driving, you're not only a danger to yourself, but you're a danger to the entire community uh, uh, that you are driving in. So only for these three factors, the, the cognitive and, uh, performance, the uh, athletic performance, and the safety issue, a good night of sleep should always be a priority for everyone. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Charest, <clears throat> Center for Sleep. He is a sleep Disorders expert, lots of calls. Sue and Surrey. Hi, Sue. Go ahead. Very vivid, elaborate dreams, and I wake up exhausted. Is there any advice you can uh, give? Dr. Sheree, I, I, I heard vivid dreams. This is the yeah, only she, part I heard. She has vivid dreams and wakes up exhausted every morning. Uh, so essentially, vivid dreams can be uh, a prod produce of a lot of things. Uh, when it comes to dreaming and you are waking up always, always tired and exhausted, this is the kind of thing that you need to bring up to your family physician or a sleep clinician first to understand why these vivid dreams are occurring. Are they linked to uh, any kind of past trauma? or are they linked to any kind of uh, acute stress and anxiety that are occurring in your life? Because in itself, a dream is not detrimental unless it causes uh, daytime fatigue the following day. So the advice would be definitely reaching out to your family physician to have an appointment with a sleep clinician in, uh, in your province. Thank you for calling, Sue. Let's go to Josh on the line in Ladner. Hi, Josh. Go ahead. Hi. How's it going? Good. Okay, thanks, Josh. So Josh says that he watches TV at night in order to fall asleep. 
Dr. Charest, your thoughts? Uh, when it comes to screen time, so the television would be the, the least of the enemy in terms of screen. So I much rather prefer someone using television than a uh, cell phone, for example. As long as the uh, television is not watched uh, while in bed, I don't have much uh, problem with that. So the idea is always to have a little buffer time of 15, 20 minutes between I'm shutting down the screen and I'm reaching my bed when it comes to a television. Okay, so you would not recommend having a, a TV in your bedroom? Absolutely not. So yeah. if you are in bed, it's because you are sleepy. If you have enough energy to watch a show or scroll on your phone, it means you are not sleepy. Therefore, you should not be in bed. Okay, Bev in Abbotsford. Hi, Bev. Go ahead. I do. I think I do everything right, but I do not have a TV in my bed. I actually don't watch much. I listen to the uh, radio, but my husband passed away a few months ago, and he had been sick earlier, and uh, I don't get even two hours sleep. I, I come up about 8.30, and I'll read, and I listen to the radio, and uh, then I shut it off. I try again, put the radio on, then I'll start reading, but I absolutely am exhausted, and I don't take any, I'll take like a melatonin, something like that. I don't want to take sleeping pills, but I can't go on like this. I'm in my late 70s. I'm totally exhausted. You can hear my voice now. I've only had probably maybe three hours last night. But I start off at wow. 8.30, and I'm exhausted at 8.30. I can barely even get up the stairs. And But I just make myself, you know, okay, you read, you listen to something, and you're going to be really tired. And I lay there, and I'll watch the clock in, on the ceiling, and it just keeps showing. I try not to look at the clock that I've done that, but it's, and then now it's time to get up. So Okay, Bev, I'm, I'm sorry for your troubles. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry you lost your husband. Um, Dr. Charest, what do you think? Uh, yeah, first off, I'm very sorry for your loss. Uh, a couple of things. I don't think you would need uh, melatonin uh, in your case to initiate your sleep. Uh, definitely, you would not need a, a projecting ceiling clock. And first and foremost, when we go through uh, these acute uh, trauma or acute phase in our lives, such as losing a husband, a life partner, uh, grieving uh, will usually impact sleep and it will it can go either way, either prolonged sleep time or complete absence of sleep. And I hear you, you, you don't want any sleep med. Uh, and what I would suggest in that term is two things. Seeing, again, your family doctor to talk about uh, that uh, lack of sleep. And please have someone to support you in uh, your grievance. This is yeah. probably the most important piece is... When we lose someone that close to us, grieving needs it requires support because or else we will have difficulty to sleep. And I don't like hearing someone going on with two, three hours sleep. Please have someone helping you from the uh, psychological point uh, side and your family physician to assess your sleep. I think that thank you, Bev, for sharing this story. And I, I hope that helps you. Fred in Vancouver. Hi, Fred. Go ahead. Uh, great show as always there, Smitty. I wanted to ask the uh, the, the scientist that, you know, there's this new thing 
is the long COVID uh, symptoms is where you're only sleeping one hour of a night and you're and you wake up right away and you can't go back to bed. But apparently, it's it's one of the biggest um, um, problems that people are having with long COVID right now. I don't know how uh, if you've got any research on that, Jonathan. Uh, it's, it's the research on long COVID, to be quite honest, is in its infancy. So we see uh, two things. The first one is what you've described. So the patient is exhausted beyond belief, but they cannot be able, they're not able to sleep more than one or two hours at a time. And the other part will be someone who cannot, they will sleep 15 hour plus. So the, for those who are sleeping only one or two hours, and this is my two cents. This is not evidence-based or anything because we don't have data yet on this. Uh, long COVID may be a inflammatory uh, in, uh, disease that is developing through COVID. It can be also an hyperarousal disease. It can be multiple things uh, because, again, we don't know much on long COVID. So my advice would be when you are not able to sleep more than one or two hours, uh, first, again, going to see your family physician, but you need to bulk up these numbers. So if you can sleep one or two hours, you should strategize uh, more than one sleep phase throughout your day so you're not too sleep deprived. Dr. Charest, we have <clears throat> more calls coming in, and I would, but we're out of time. I would love to have you back on uh, because there's obviously a lot of interest here among the listeners in hearing your advice and your thoughts. So thank you for coming on today. I'd love to have you back. Well, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure talking about sleep. So anytime you want me back, just send me an email and I'll answer.